Hi, I'm Raphael Honigstein, and you're listening to the Bavarian Podcast Works. Hello and welcome in to a new and interesting episode of Bavarian Podcast Works because with the lack of soccer actually being played, all we have is to just sit here and speculate. And what better way to do that than a debate style, which is why we have called this Bavarian Podcast Works Goes Around the Horn. Now, for those of you that do not watch SportsCenter or ES, for those of you that do not watch ESPN, Around the Horn is a debate style show where we throw out a topic and we would just debate back and forth on it a whole bunch. So we've come up with a couple of topics beforehand and then we went to Twitter and took some of yours and for those our Twitter Meister Tom Adams will be able to introduce them to us but for the first two topics we will be debating uh, Chuck Smith and Tom will each be taking their turns and then I might interject at the very end so guys are you all set and ready to start this off raring to go let's get into it All right, so the very first topic, one that is near and dear to the hearts of everybody, is the transfer rumors surrounding Leroy Sané and Timo Werner possibly coming to Bayern Munich. Now, I know that everyone here doesn't have their biases at all, so it might be really, really tough trying to ask some of you to go one way or the other, but... Tom, I'm going to have you lay out your argument for Leroy Sané after I ask a big job of Chuck and try to uh, convince us why Timo Werner is a better signing for Bayern Munich. So, Chuck, start us off. Thank you, Jake. I'd be happy to take the podium here and express why Timo is the man for Bayern. And let me just first start by saying that I don't think and I mean this with all sincerity, that Bayern can go wrong with Timo Werner, Leroy Sané, or Kai Havertz. In fact, I would absolutely be a fan of Bayern at some point over the next two years being able to procure all three players. I know that in the current financial climate, that seems kind of absurd, but I do think that there is a slim possibility that if the players hold their ground and stay where they're at, Uh, at least in the case of Havertz and possibly Sané, it it is possible to see all three. But back to Timo and why I would favor uh, Timo Werner, the RB Leipzig dynamo, as I like to refer to him as, uh, you know, the, the rationale I have with Timo Werner, and it's not just because I'm a fan of the way he plays the game. He has an absolute nose for the goal. He's a great scorer. His pace is unbelievable. And I know you could also say, hey, Sané is fast as well. Werner has that extra gear that not many uh, soccer players have. And Sané also has it. But why I prefer Werner is that scoring touch. And another reason I'd like to to tout Timo is his durability. Uh, Now, yes, it's kind of unfair looking at Sané because he had the knee injury that's kept him out for the greater part of the season. But he's had an off and on history of injuries and knocks that have kept him out. Werner, over the years, by my calculations, has missed 
six games since 2014. So his durability alone makes him a player that I would like to pursue. Also, another big aspect to his game, which I guess you could really argue this if you wanted to, is I like his versatility, sure. Be playing with Robert Lewandowski, Werner it would not be the first option, right? But Bayern does need a plan post-Lewandowski. And it wouldn't also hurt to play Werner and Lewandowski together. Just think of the possibilities of those two against any back line anywhere. I'd take my chances with that. But Werner can move to either wing. He could play as a secondary striker or attacking midfielder. He's that type of player. Now, you know, I'll get crushed and everybody on the Sané bandwagon will come at me and say, you're just, oh, hashtag Timo time idiot, you moron. But listen, I would take Timo. But like I said at the beginning, I'd have no argument against Sané or Havertz. Why I prefer Timo is his versatility, his durability. And I actually think that his cost at this stage is definitely going to be lower than Sané. And just look at that contract situation. Timo is in a spot with RB Leipzig that he doesn't have to make a move if he doesn't want to. But the club knows he wants to go. Sané has one year left. If he stuck it out with Manchester City for a year, there's nothing they could do about him leaving on a free. As for Havertz, that's 2023, I believe his contract ends. Hey, nothing, he would not be harmed at all by staying with Leverkusen another year. So, Tom, I know you're going to come here and you're going to throw some stats and you're going to talk about Sané's pace. And you're definitely going to address the fact that Bayern needs a true winger. How many times do we have to hear that? But, yes, I wouldn't even argue with any of that, Tom. I like Sané as well. I'm a fan. But why don't you give me what you got there, big guy? No, I mean, it's all just going to come down to the versatility of Leroy Sané's hair. I mean, he can just wear it in any style. Cornrows, fro, medium fro, large fro, we've had it all. But no, in all seriousness, uh, when I was looking at this, I kind of narrowed it down into three different categories. Uh, the narrative of the transfer uh, for Leroy Sané, uh, positionality, as you already kind of touched base upon, uh, and price. Uh, and now what I mean... Uh, when I say narrative, obviously with all three of these guys, we can call them quote-unquote the big three for Bayern Munich, uh, in Sané, Werner, and Havertz, we've exhausted ourselves covering these stories. I mean, the rumors have been around forever. Um, Leroy Sané rumor has probably been around a little bit longer than Timo Werner uh, and Kai Havertz, but obviously the latter two have, have kind of spiked because we know that Hansi Flick has said, you know, wait a minute, I don't want to put these guys out of the picture and just focus on Sané. I want to focus on all three. Um, and shortly after that, he puts pen to paper, signs a uh, contract extension to stay at Bayern until 2023. So there's a lot of moving parts there. Uh, and one of the things I look at, too, so with both of these guys, one, you have Leroy Sané with his experience in Manchester City. Yes, he's missed a lot of time with that cruciate ligament injury that he sustained against Liverpool um, in one of those Mickey Mouse trophy games, the Community Shield um, but he's a player who's used to the Premier League. He's playing under a Pep Guardiola team, a team, as we know uh, from Pep Guardiola's past with Bayern Munich, that likes to possess the ball um, for 90% of the match. Uh, doesn't necessarily play the same way that RB Leipzig uh, plays, or I could even bring in Liverpool to this because um, the latest reports out of Germany, Sport Building Kicker, are saying that Jurgen Klopp uh, was even planning on meeting with Timo Werner, but. Obviously, the uh, the coronavirus pandemic has, um, you know, altered those plans, and that's not really something that can take place right now. Um, and kind of circling back, you know, Leroy Sané is someone who's played in the Premier League, 
the next step for him. I don't see him going anywhere else in the Premier League. It just has to be Bayern Munich. Uh, he's a German player. He can become one of the focal pieces of this Bayern Munich squad. And on the other side, you have Timo Werner. He's already had all this experience in the Bundesliga. And I think for him, the next step that he wants to look at is playing abroad, perhaps for someone uh, like Jurgen Klopp, you know, the heavy metal, free-flowing football. I'm sure, Chuck, you would even argue that uh, Werner would fit far better in a counter-attacking heavy metal style of play than perhaps uh, Bayern or, or anyone else. Um, and another thing, too, with the narratives, Timo Werner has been very open when he's asked about a potential future. Uh, with either Jurgen Klopp, Liverpool, or someone else in the Premier League. I believe it was after one of the legs in the Champions League against Tottenham, uh, where he was directly asked about potentially playing in the Premier League um, and asked about the interest from Liverpool, and he was very, very flattered by it and kind of went on instead of saying, oh, you know, we won this game against Tottenham. We still have uh, another match to go because I believe it was in the first leg, after the first leg, that this was this conversation was taking place. Instead of kind of playing it down and said, you know, we have half the job done. We need to we need to finish it. He went on and he was saying, you know, Liverpool is one of the best teams in the world. I would love to play there one day. I'm very flattered uh, by the offer. Obviously, uh, paraphrasing that. And the latest reports out of Germany are saying that Leroy Sané's agent has said, yes, you know, Bayern is still the prime destination. We still want to get this uh, over the line because, as we know, this this rumor has gone on forever. He's been our main guy since we had Nico Kovac at the beginning of this season and going back into last season. Um, and then number two, uh, positionality. I just don't see... I personally feel that Timo Werner is better as a natural striker. I think we saw World Cup 2018 when he was played in a wide role, albeit the circumstances were a little bit difficult and we were chasing the game uh, against Korea. He's just not as effective as he is uh, as a center forward. And I just don't think within the next two or three seasons, yes, uh, injuries could happen, but we all know that Robert Lewandowski does not miss uh, a lot of time he would have missed quite a few matches had the COVID-19 pandemic not stopped football um, during this stretch, which would include the second leg against uh, Chelsea, whoever we would have wound up playing next in the Champions League, assuming we didn't somehow blow that lead. Uh, Derek Klassiker, uh, you name it. But case in point, Lewandowski does not miss a lot of time. Um, yes, I do agree with your point that there could be a potential for both of them to play together. Um, Bayern so rarely, whether it's uh, Jupp Heynckes, Niko Kovac, Hansi Flick, has almost never gone with uh, two natural strikers up front. It seems to always be Lewandowski with two wingers behind him um, and Thomas Muller behind him as a central attacking mid. I just think that because of that, uh, Leroy Sané is a better fit because he can occupy one of those uh, wide spaces behind Lewandowski uh, very, very well, much better uh, than Timo Werner could. And I think that's really kind of the missing puzzle piece, so to speak. Um, if you look at someone like Kingsley Coman, who has a lot of injury trouble, that's perhaps someone that uh, Sané could displace. It could be Gnabry, Muller, uh, Sané, right across from left to right, just behind uh, Lewandowski. And I just think that uh, Timo Werner, he wouldn't want to be coming into to a situation where he'd either have to be playing wide if he starts or spending, you know, all of his time competing for minutes with uh, Robert Lewandowski. Uh, and last but not least, as far as the price, um, I know that you had mentioned that you think that you thought that uh, Timo Werner would be a little bit cheaper than Leroy Sané. Um, but I kind of want to go with uh, the hunch that Karl-Heinz Rummenigge 
Bayern's brother had uh, Michael. He had recently said that he thinks that Bayern can p- perhaps get Sané for somewhere in between thirty to fifty million euro, and I, I think that is something that's possible, given the landscape of what's going on. You know, I think it's, I. It's it's difficult to say what the landscape is going to look like. So obviously, everything we're talking about right now is hypothetical because we have no idea when the next transfer window is going to be, what it's going to look like, what fees are are going to be involved because so many clubs uh, in Europe are taking a massive uh, economical hit because of this virus. But I just think that when push comes to shove... with with everything involved, you know, we still don't know what's going on with Manchester City's financial financial fair play investigation from UEFA. Will they even be playing Champions League football next season? Is that something that Bayern can leverage when we go to the negotiating table? Um, can we also bring up the fact that Sané had asked not to be involved in that Community Shield match against Liverpool? Uh, can we use that to try and get the price wriggle down, uh, et cetera, et cetera? And I just think that. Um, if you have these two guys and they're around a similar price, I'm not exactly quite sure what uh, Timo Werner's release clause is and his contract. I just think the time is right uh, to pull the trigger on Leroy Sané, even though he does not have very long left on his contract. And I think if we're able to get him for that 30 to 50 million uh, euro price range, I think that's what we have to do. Uh, Timo Werner, I wouldn't be surprised to see him sticking uh, in Leipzig with for at least another season or perhaps going to the Premier League. Hey, Tom, really quickly, Jake, before uh, you jump in, I want to point out a little bit of a conspiracy theory here with Tom, given his Liverpool uh, blood that he bleeds. I think his case for Sané was bolstered by the fact he wants Timo Werner with Liverpool. So I think you should take everything that Tom is saying with a big grain of salt there. But I love you, Tom. And guess what? We'll be the two wearing those Timo Werner Liverpool jerseys if he does go there. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that the one thing is just for me, I would love to see him there, but it's like you got to take – who of the front three is he going to take out, Firmino, Salah, or Mane? And all my buddies have sent me those bogus reports saying that Mane is going to go to Real Madrid. I really hope that doesn't happen. I just watched his documentary the other day, and it made me love Mane even more. Um, but I guess if that does happen, I would not mind seeing Werner step in as one of those, one of those front three if Mane wants to run off to Madrid. But yes, it is maybe a little conspiracy. I wouldn't be shocked if Bobby Firmino actually heads off to Real Madrid. They don't necessarily need another big right winger. They absolutely need a formidable striker right up top, somebody to go in and replace Karim Benzema. But before we keep going further on that, and before we allow Chuck to talk even more about Timo Werner than he already does, we're going to move on to something a bit more pressing and a bit more immediate. So coming in just this afternoon from Deutsche Welle, uh, they released a report saying that the German government announced a ban on major sporting events until August 31st. However, ghost games, the Geisterspiele, if you will, in the Bundesliga remains a possibility from as early as next month. It had been recently debated and brought forth by the CEO of the Bundesliga that they might be able to start their games up within the first three weeks of May. Now, granted, none of us are doctors, but we all also realize that Germany has done a much better job 
of containing this virus and containing this disease than other countries, including Italy, Great Britain, the United States, etc. So much to the point that a report today came out in the Americas that the German government's considering opening the economy in early March and having schools slowly and carefully brought back. So for you two, I want to know, do you think that bringing back the Bundesliga in May is either a possibility or a good idea? And we'll have Tom start this one. 100%. I think it's a possibility. Um, Whether or not I think it's a good idea, um, as you mentioned, none of us are doctors. I I vest my faith in the the German government um, and and German healthcare because I think that uh, they've shown that throughout this pandemic, they've been one of the countries uh, to get everything right and, and do everything that they can to uh, reduce the amount of time that this pandemic is really thriving and, and spreading throughout their people. Um, I think that their healthcare systems is one of the best in the world. Um, and I also think that uh, Christian Seifert, um, pre- or CEO of the, uh, the DFL, has been very blunt and very direct uh, with all of his instructions and all of the teleconferences that they have. Uh, yes, from the outside looking in, uh, for a lot of people, unlike us, who are not very familiar with the German footballing landscape uh, or Germany at all, it's very easy to kind of look at and point the finger and say, you know, this is absolutely ridiculous. Why would you even be thinking thinking about this right now? You know, you're putting people's lives at stake <clears throat> during a pandemic. This isn't something that you should be doing. But obviously, as we know, um, Germany is one of the places that's... Uh, the footballing league is more the Bundesliga and the and the, the two liga. I, I'm uh, referring to a lot more uh, financially ready. Um, I should say I should go back and say they were a lot more financially ready than a lot of the other clubs and the other top European European leagues were. There's already a lot of clubs in England, particularly in the EFL, that are very very close to having to go to administration, which basically means uh, bankruptcy. So they're in a very very difficult spot there. Um, but as far as getting this to take place, I think it's important to note that the potential plan that they have in place uh, is using a cluster of venues that are relatively close by, having the players stay in isolated hotels away from one another, um, as well, along with the coaching staff, the training staff, um, and then having all of the media and the press in one hotel, because I think something I remember reading, it takes about 200 to 230 people to put on a football match uh, even if it's Geisterspiele or you know as you know ghost games games without fans so there is obviously a massive risk but I don't think uh, that the DFL and the German government would be saying any of this if they didn't feel like it was a realistic possibility Um, from what I understand they're going to have all the medical staff in place all of the players all of the staff and all of the people uh, for TV media press however many people they're going to let in are going to be tested uh, routinely to make sure that no one is testing positive for the virus. If someone does, they're going to isolate that person. There is a risk of shutting everything down if that does happen, but I have full confidence uh, in the DFL and the German government to give the green light on this and make sure that everything goes smoothly. Uh, and not for nothing either, When, if and when this does come back in May, even if it's without spectators, I think it'll give people uh, a beacon of hope just to show that there's some shred of normal life, uh, at least somewhere in the world, that's uh, returning to normal. Because uh, I think that's something that we all need right now. But um, yeah, I think that the German government is doing a fantastic job. 
so I think that um, they'll give the green light only if they're ready. And if that's the case, 100% go for it. Yeah, and definitely backing up what Tom said, if, if the German government makes that determination that the German society is ready and that everyone is comfortable with the measures that they'll put in place to make this happen, I don't see any reason why they won't be playing those games in May. You know, there'll be empty stadiums, but it just seems like Germany has progressed to the point where they are ready to start having a life again. And that's we're far away from that here in the United States. I think we've got a while to go, but they took some drastic measures to contain things that society bought into everything and adhered to the the standards that were put in place with the exception of, you know, a few outliers which, you know, we've seen everywhere around the world. But it seems like they're ready to go. They're ready to get back to normalcy. And it looks like that they have at least put a plan in place that would protect the players and anyone having to work those events uh, from being exposed to the virus. So I think if they follow a strict plan and they're able to play the games in empty stadiums and not put anyone at risk, I think, you know, I think it'll be a good thing. And it will really help not just the Germans, but anybody that follows the Bundesliga around the world just to give you something something to pay attention to some hope some idea of what life used to be like because i i know right now i'm basically forgetting everything like normally at this time of year i'd be you know my my weekends would be spent you know watching Bayern and multiple other teams from the bundesliga or you know at night watching the phillies the flyers or the sixers instead right now my television is like nonstop reruns of iCarly, Victorious, and, uh, you know, shows like that. And I-, I could actually probably sing each of those theme songs. Like, here I am once again, and all that kind of crap. Like, so I'm ready. If anybody's ready for this, it's me because I'm literally going to throw my TV out if I hear any more Teen Nick songs, okay? How dare you disrespect such high quality television? How dare you? We don't need any slander on iCarly or Victorious in this podcast, Chuck. I will stand for I, none of I, it. I have, I have become a huge Gibby fan, though, in all this time. I've had, I've really grown an appreciation for the character Gibby on iCarly, so I can't get enough of that guy. Absolutely. We all gotta love Gibby. My only concern, at least going back to this, is whether or not the fans come out to support the teams outside of the stadiums, as we had seen in a couple of the Geisterspiele games that happened right before the league was canceled for the time being. My hope is that people will recognize that this is still a big issue. Back then, I guess we still kind of didn't know how big of a deal this all was, but with restrictions relaxing, my hope is that people will not take that as a sign that we are all out of the woods yet and that we all still need to practice safe things like social distancing and that we all need to stay inside that's that's really my only hope because if they open the stadiums back up and they start playing again and only 250 260 people are supposed to be inside of the ground and there are 3000 congregating outside then that could be incredibly dangerous to not only 
the reputation of the German government and the Bundesliga in and of itself, but of course to the fans in the in the vicinity of the stadium, the people that work there, and the players themselves. So I guess that's probably my only concern, and I hope that there are plans in place to make sure that none of that ends up happening. Uh, so we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, Tom and I are going to swap roles, and he'll be reading us off some of your questions from Twitter. Now we're back, and Tom is going to take over as the moderator for the remaining portion of this podcast, and of course he's allowed to interject at the end as well. So Tom, why don't you go ahead and start us off with the first question? All right, and first off, thanks again for all the questions, guys. You really made this episode happen. Uh, So without further ado, the first question that we're going to tackle comes from at Arvin, and they ask... Would you rather have a prime Franck Ribéry or a prime Ariane Robin with this current Bayern Munich team? Uh, so Jake and then Chuck. Ooh, this is a really, really tough question. But to me, I think it's relatively clear and it's all based on need. Not to disrespect Arjen Robin at all. He is absolutely phenomenal as a player. He is a total legend. But I really do think that Franck Ribéry in his prime would have absolutely killed it with this team. And I think that's just for one reason and one reason only. You have to ask yourself the question of who is more in need of a replacement at this point. If you had to find a replacement, is it Serge Gnabry or is it Kingsley Coman? And to me, I think it's a close one, but I do think Coman needs that replacing a little bit more. When you hear about all of these rumors about people coming into the club, it's not high-class right-wingers, it's high-class left-wingers, right? Timo played a bit on the left wing in the World Cup, but he's versatile with both feet, so you could technically see him playing on the right wing as well. And Leroy Sané is a guaranteed bona fide left winger, and he is a phenomenal left winger at that, right? You don't see the same need at the right wing position. Byron would like it, absolutely, but that's not somebody that needs replacing right now. Serge Gnabry is holding down that position just fine. I think if prime Franck Ribéry came into this team, I think he would absolutely dominate from beginning to end. I think that we would see a lot more of his trademark crosses into the box to either Robert Lewandowski or whoever comes in, a la Mario Mandzukic from the 2013 uh, campaign when Bayern won the Champions League. So to me, I think it is a very close one, but seeing as Coman needs, would need replacing more than Gnabry, I'm going to have to go with Ribéry. Jake, I would love to sit here and scream at you and call you a moron and tell you you're an idiot. It's all such good rationale. I can't argue with any of it. Ribéry would be... Exactly, because I'm right. (laughs) Well... I won't argue that you're right. And the rationale with Coman is, is, to me, that's what makes the difference. It's more of the need, which the question was about. So if you're just talking about need, yes, Franck Ribéry, he is the replacement that you would want to fit into this modern-day Bayern lineup. But when I think about Aryan Robin, I think about the pace. I think about... That feeling that when he puts that ball onto his left foot at anywhere, any point in that offensive end of the field, it's it was the possibility of a goal when he was in his prime. The creativity, 
the way he was able to use his body and get that split second opening to unleash that left footed shot. I would take Robin just about on any team, regardless of need, because I feel like he's a player that you could make work just about anywhere. And I think if you put him on the right side of this Bayern lineup and you've pushed Gnabry over to the left side or you used Perisic or you had Coman and he stayed healthy, I think ultimately he gives you that danger, you know, barreling down that right side that just would strike fear in any defense. So I I like your rationale, Jake. I love your argument and it makes way more sense than anything I'll say, but I would take Robin just for that fear factor. I think I'm going to have to side with Chuck on this one too. And it's kind of funny because when both of these players were approaching the end of their career in their last seasons with Bayern, it was Ribéry who was playing more because Robin was hurt. Chuck, I even think it was you um, at one point last season that bizarre like thing he had going on with a rotten tooth or something or one or the other. And there was like a, a team doctor from a different coach that wound up helping him or referring him to a dentist. Something very, very bizarre like that. It, I don't know why I just remembered that, but it's like one of those things that just popped out in my mind. But the one thing I just want to piggyback off of what you said is I think any of our wingers right now are um, interchangeable in the sense that you could play them either on the right or on the left or perhaps even the middle if need be. But in my opinion, that's where uh, Thomas Muller's best position is. It's always best to have him playing just behind Lewandowski. As you mentioned, Gnabry, uh, Kingsley Coman, Philippe Coutinho, they could all play on the left, which would obviously, because we're assuming that either Ribéry or Robin in this in scenario is in their prime, so they would potentially be displacing someone from the current starting 11. And I just think that uh, Robin being able to cut in you know, that cut into the left foot from the right side is just his trademark. And I just have so many memories of him just absolutely rinsing defenders with his pace and either whipping a cross in or cutting into the left and then, um, you know, shooting from distance, which is another thing that kind of popped into my mind. I, I oftentimes notice that we don't often shoot from distance. Um, one of you can correct me if you think I'm wrong in that, but uh, he's one guy who's not afraid to pull the trigger from about 30, 40 yards out, which is not something we do enough of. Uh, in my opinion, and we should be doing more of. So uh, gonna have to go with Robin. I am okay. Sorry okay, to... hold on one second there, Nico. Yep. Let's talk about this blasphemy. That I I will repeat that. I will go Stephen A. That absolute blasphemous statement that you just said about bringing on Philippe Coutinho to polish off that left wing. I don't know what Bayern Munich you saw in the beginning of the season when Philippe Coutinho was playing on the left wing, but I don't think we did exactly that well. Do you want Philippe Coutinho on that left wing? I don't think so. Here's my basic question. Yes, you are very right about everybody being able to swap back and forth and all the players playing together, right? But At the end of the day, we're talking about everybody's natural positions and what needs to happen in order for Bayern to win. Now, I'm going to be the first to admit, Franck Ribéry did not score that often, and that's okay, right? Because he assisted a lot more, and I would argue that Ribéry's assist factor was just about as dangerous as Robin's ability to cut in. It was so underrated about his game, and it was one of the most beautiful things to watch. But here is my question. If we are talking about natural positions, what tandem would you be more afraid of? Ribery and Ganabri or Robin and Coman? 
I'm pretty sure the answer to that one, logically, if you're on the side of logic here, would obviously be Serge Gnabry, a man who strolls into London and scores four goals and tweets things like, London is still red. A man who goes ahead and absolutely terrifies Tony Pulis to this very day for passing up on him when he was available. He was sitting in the palm of Tony Pulis's hand, and the hat man said no, and he let him go to Arsenal, and then Arsenal let him go. I would rather see, I would be just as terrified solely for the teamwork and for the assist factors of having Franck Ribéry. And what I heard from both of you right now is that you hate David Alaba. You disrespect <laughs> David Alaba's friendship with Frank Ribéry, and that is shameful. You should be ashamed of yourselves. You know what's shameful, Jake, is you're actually trying to bring logic into any argument with Tom or myself because you should know better than that. We've got about three brain cells combined. Come on now. Chuck, I think Jake might have been spending a lot of time at Leonis's house. He might have been right next to Ili Honus uh, crying when Ribéry scored in that last game when we clinched the title last season. We got to oh, we got to check beautiful. the clip on that and see if Jake's in the background there hugging Uli. We really have to see. <laughs> Jake 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 was probably also at the infamous Nico Kovac 99 Luff Balloons taping as well. I'm He's not going to reveal it. I'm not going to reveal it. The lost file. Someone has to dig it up. The one thing I would say, too, to my defense, perhaps I'm getting my Liverpool and Bayern red mixed up because Coutinho played a lot of good matches in that spot. I'll refer you to a Mr. Jurgen Kloppmeister. What? All right. Let us get into another question, shall we? And our next question comes from at F. Polygianis. I apologize if I butchered that handle. Um, but anyways, he asked, do you think that Bayern squad needs reinforcement with approximately four to five players? Or would just one signing be okay? Yeah, I mean, I mean, honestly, I'm a person that I do worry a lot about having too much talent. It sounds so stupid saying it like that, but I worry when Bayern loads up and they have too many personalities, too many players that should be playing. I don't know if five players are needed. I mean, there are certainly depth players needed. I mean, you need backups in the central midfield. You need backups in the central defensive unit. You need backups on the wing. As far as starting caliber players go, one player like Sané or one player like Werner, I think they make a bigger impact. But there is a need. There certainly is a need for depth on the squad. And I think you could get you know a player like Adrian Fine coming back from alone that could help fill that depth or you could promote some of the young defenders like Lars Lucas Mai or Chris Richards to fill those defensive depth spots. But at this point, I would tend to say that one player will make the bigger difference. If anybody knows Chuck, we all know that if there's any train that he's on bigger than the Timo train, it's the Chris Richards train and it's well deserved I think that Chris Richards is a phenomenal player, and I think he's a great young talent. I think he's going to do a lot for this Bayern Munich team, but I'm in perfect agreement with you. I think that four or five players just seems like way too much because I'm going to I'm gonna ask this very basic and very simple question. Say you go out and you get all of the players that you want, right? Let's call it five, and let's throw a random five out there. Say Bayern bankrupts themselves by going out to get Sané, Havertz, and Werner, right? 
let's also throw in Dio Upamakano, and then let's throw in some random young up-and-coming talent. Let's call it Tyler Adams, even though I know that that won't happen, and I know that he's not linked with Bayern in any way, shape, or form. Where are you going to find the positioning and the playing time to fit all of them? Because that's your question. I mean, selling Coman might be the most logical thing to do, despite how talented that he is. Uh, do you go ahead and you sell Serge Gnabry as well? What about T uh, Thomas Müller? Where is he going to play? Are you going to start Kai Havertz over him? Are you going to have a uh, new right winger cutting in? Is it going to be somebody that you got to go out and buy? Is it going to be... Timo Werner, right? And then what about that central defensive midfield unit, right? Who are you going to have Tyler Adams come in and replace? Is it going to be Thiago? Is it going to be Joshua Kimmich? Is it going to be Leon Goretzka? Now, the back line is a completely different thing because Bayern's kryptonite over the last couple of years has been injuries to the defensive unit. And I think that buying somebody like Dio Upamakano is a great idea because it allows for versatility to be brought in. It allows for certain players to be rotated around. To me, I think that Bayern should go after one of those top three players that we were mentioning in the previous segment, Sané, Werner, or Havertz, either one of them, and then get either one or two different players uh, to fill in that back line, one at the right back position, or a versatile wing-back position player, such as Lucas Klosterman or Ashraf Hakimi, and then also go out and get either Ibrahimo Konate or Dio Upamakano, because I think that Chris Richards and Lars Lucas Mai are both really great players, but I simply think that neither of them are ready just yet, because the amount of time that they've spent on the Bayern U21 team and FC Bayern 2 is not going to be as much of an equivalent as the Bundesliga, obviously, and the retort that we might get from you, Chuck, which is a fair retort, is that they don't have to be playing all of those games, and I perfectly agree. I'm not coming in and expecting either of them to be fully consistent starters, but what I'm hoping is that they could get loaned out to either a high-performing Zweiliga side, a mid-to-low-performing Bundesliga side, or one of the top three teams in the Austrian Bundesliga, whether that's Basel, Young Boys, or RB Salzburg, right? I think going out to one of those and getting more and more time to try to develop their skills will be a lot better on them, both in development and on their mental state, than going right ahead to Bayern. Because let's be perfectly honest, not every single person in that academy of any team, let alone Bayern, is going to come onto the pitch and perform as well as Alfonso Davies. I don't think any of us this season could have projected that Alfonso Davies was going to be as well as Alfonso Davies was this season. So I think to go ahead and loan those players out will do a lot better for them. They'll get a lot better playing time. They won't be having nearly as much pressure on them as they would coming into Bayern. And I think after doing that, we're probably going to have two of our center backs of the future. I definitely think that about Chris Richards, and I'm prob probably certain that Lars Lucas Mai will do the exact same thing. But to bring in somebody like Upa Meccano 
and Ashraf Hakimi, in addition to one of those three attacking players, will be enough to shore up the back line for a really hard treble push potentially next year. Yeah, I mean, there, those are some very valid points, especially with the back line. And I think it really comes down to a couple of things when you look at that area of the team. Do you trust Nicholas Sula is going to be able to come back healthy? And how much will he be able to play as he works his way back from not just being healthy, but back to 100%? And how do you see the versatility on that back line? When I look at it, and we touched on this a little bit in the last podcast, I see Benjamin Pavard being able to shift between center back and right back. I see Joshua Kimmich being able to drop from central midfield back to right back. I see a, a tremendous rotation of David Alaba, Luca Hernandez, and Alfonso Davies between those two spots on the left side of the back line. I think they have some versatile and very talented players back there. So I'm not as pressed to add talent back there. And I actually think that's one of the reasons I feel like you're able to keep one of those two young kids in the back. And if you wanted to try and add a veteran center back, someone toward the end of his career, sort of like what Ivan Perisic did this season out on the wing, if you could find someone like that, I'd be more inclined to bring that type of player in than probably Upamakano, who then, to me, even though he's very talented, if you believe in Sula, I believe it it creates a little bit of a logjam back there. And do you want that headache long term? I think that both of you guys answered that question perfectly and pretty much covered all the basis there. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I know that BFWs at I Need No Name will probably say that I'm jinxing the team right now, but I think both of you guys would agree. I'm literally at a point where I would hand in maybe three future transfers to strike some kind of a deal with the injury gods if they could just guarantee us that at least two or three of our big-time players wouldn't get a significant injury. Maybe we barter some kind of deal. We give the injury gods like uh, one of Bernie's cruciate ligaments or something like that, but I think that a lot of Bayern fans would agree it would be like, I don't even know the word to describe, like Nirvana if we had a season where we didn't have one major injury to one of our best players. Somehow we got to get that figured out. I don't know if Maybe something that Dr. Hans Muller-Wolfhard is doing or, you know, if we need to get someone else in the office with him. But I would gladly, gladly accept that deal if the injury gods would be willing to do that. I hope they're listening right now. Right now, Please help us. Sacrifice Mikhail Cuisance to the injury gods, question mark? Right. Well, and that's what I think, Jake. When you look at the squad right now, like, I really like Cuisance and I really like Quarantin Tolisso. No, I do too. I, I struggle to find where they're going to fit, and that's all—that's the depth they currently have. So adding five versus one, I think the one thing that all three of us can agree on is one big impact player probably would be our preference rather than five pretty good players. I, I completely agree, and I'll just make this point very quickly before we go ahead and move on. I really do think that we don't need to buy another central midfielder for another two, three years. I think we're pretty well set right now, so as much as I do love Kai Havertz as a good young talent, I think we could basically just keep him in the back of our mind for a little while for now. Not to say that he isn't a good player, but you take a look at that midfield, right? Tiago's only 29. 
He still has, at minimum, a good four years left in central midfield if we're really pushing it and he stays completely healthy. And I still think that Corentin Tolisso has a lot to contribute to this team, and it's going to hurt me a lot if this team sold him because not only is he a World Cup winning and a world potentially world-class talent, he was born and raised a Bayern Munich fan. So it would really suck to me if you grow up and you play for your favorite team and then they go ahead and sell you. Just to me, personally, that would make me kind of sad. 2022 for Havertz, Jake. That's that's how long we have to wait. So if they can somehow make that work with Leverkusen, that wouldn't be such a bad backup. Muller's contract ends in 2023. One year of a mentorship and possibly them playing together sounds like a perfect recipe to me. And our next question comes from at OscarAB27. Just going to provide a little bit of context for you guys for this question. Uh, so as you know, this has to do with uh, Ivan the Great, a.k.a. Ivan Perisic. Uh, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge recently said they still don't know what they want to do uh, with Perisic. It was reported that his um, buyout clause from Inter Milan, obviously he's on loan from Inter Milan, is going to be around 15 to 20 million euro. So with that said... Would you bring in Ivan Perisic, who has been a very reliable presence for 15 to 20 mil, even if it meant potentially jeopardizing one of the quote-unquote big three moves? And I think you know who we're talking about. Looking back on that question, I really don't think that Ivan Perisic coming in is going to have a major effect on the future of this transfer market because his fee is so low. I think Bayern Munich fans can agree on two things. Number one... Inter Milan does not really have a need anymore for Ivan Perisic. He's not really going to go ahead and make a major impact on that team, despite the great step forward that he's made at Bayern Munich. And that's mainly because he is toward the back end of his career. He's in his mid-30s, he's not going to get any younger anytime soon, and his natural abilities are going to start declining a little bit. And the second thing that we can all agree on is that Perisic at Bayern has been really, really important in terms of serving as a backup facility to Kingsley Coman on that left wing. Now, if we're talking about selling a player like Kingsley Coman, we're going to get probably somewhere between 50 and 70 million for him. Now, that's a pretty good chunk of change, right? I don't know if Kingsley Coman would be perfectly happy serving as a backup if we go out and get either Leroy Sané or Timo Werner. But if we sell him for like for in that price range and then use 10 to 15 million on that on buying Ivan Perisic, I think that's a perfectly feasible and a wonderful backup option to whoever we go out and get. And Ivan Perisic isn't going to be going to the Bayern manager demanding starting minutes because he knows where he's at in his career. And Hansi Flick also knows where he's at in his career. He's serving as a very good, very viable veteran backup option who still has a lot left in the tank to offer despite his time running low. And I think I would rather have that in there than a potential war between Kingsley Coman and whoever gets brought in. That would just be a lot of unwanted attention that goes back to the FC Hollywood days that we don't want to necessarily 
in sight yet again. So I see Perisic as the perfect option to back up whoever comes in, and I think that Bayern would be a little slightly out of their minds to not think that Perisic is more than worth his value at only 10 to 15 million euro. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's it's a no-brainer on Perisic. He's been really good, a good, stable, and steady veteran presence. Up until Odriozola lopped off part of his ankle bone in that practice, uh, with that practice tackle, uh, you know, I, I think Perisic had far exceeded most people's expectations for what he could bring to the table. I think he's been excellent in that role, and I would have zero issue with him coming back and filling that role. And he's just been steady. You can't ask for much more than what he's given, and I think he's just the type of player that you need when you're building a squad that's going to contend for the Champions League. You need young talent, you need good veterans, but you need a very stable bench presence, and I think that's what he brings to the table. I think we're all in agree- agreement here that we should definitely uh, pull the trigger on this, especially if we can get, you know, that buyout option wriggled down to 15 million a euro from 20 million euro. And just as Chuck had mentioned, you know, with how we're playing, especially in the Champions League, moving forward, we're just that one puzzle piece away from having a squad that's consistently competing for a treble. Um, and I think that having a, a veteran presence like Perisic around uh, to bring off the bench and start in certain situations is, is just the perfect thing to have. Um, I'm going to go back to Chuck. Do you think was it on purpose from Odriozola? <laughs> the conspiracy theorist in me would, would love to say yes, but I think Odriozola was probably just a little overzealous wanting to prove himself in practice and went a little bit too hard in on Perisic on that one. That's probably what happened. Uh, although you never know. I mean, he is from Real Madrid, so maybe this was all part of a, a greater plan to hurt Bayern in the long run. When Real Madrid is involved, it, there's always a conspiracy, especially when it's against us, because that's just that's just a known fact, and that's that's a fact of life, and that's just what it is. And all right, so the last question we have, and this is a great one to finish with, I'm very excited to hear what you boys have to say about this. And it comes from at AhmadN2003. And they ask, what is the best World Cup final in your opinion? That is a, that is a tough one. Um, obviously, you could go back to the Zidane era with, with France and, and how they won that World Cup. I believe, was that in 96 or 2000? My, my memory is terrible these days. Um, that was, to me, a, a very uh, exciting World Cup finale. But when I, when I think about this question, I mean, you can give the response, the, the typical one that, that kind of, you know, you pick out which was the most exciting. But I look at two that stand out that, that kind of meant the most to me in terms of watching the games. 1990, I was in just finishing up eighth grade, so that tells you how old I am. But uh, watching, I guess at the time, it was West Germany win under Franz Beckenbauer. Um, that was really my first introduction to soccer, believe it or not. Uh, I grew up in an area that did not have a soccer program, like at all. So you either played football in the fall or you did nothing. So American football, I mean. So that's what I did. It's a very, it was a very industrial working class area. Soccer was considered kind of the, uh, the rich kid sport from a couple of towns over. So 
the world has obviously changed now, but that was the first World Cup final and actually the whole World Cup tournament that kind of captured my imagination. And when I, I guess when I, I look at 2014, obviously that stands out just because of the high drama, Germany versus Argentina, and just seeing Mario Gutza be able to come in uh, after the now famous pep talk with Yogi Love, uh, you know, telling him he was, uh, you know, show the world, I'm paraphrasing, that you're as good as Messi or whatever. Obviously, we know how that turned out in the long run, but to see him come in, the excitement of how he scored that goal and just the culmination of everything that happened in that tournament and how Germany looked throughout, it was just really fun to watch. So I would say 2014 is my favorite 1990 is probably the one that that I'll remember the most because it got me hooked. I'm going to go down a similar route. Now, I didn't really start following soccer in depth until after the 2010 World Cup. Now, I was just curious and I decided to go back through the years and take a look at all of these different World Cup finals since I was born back in 1998 with that France World Cup. That World Cup final was a 3-0 win, France over Brazil. The 2002 World Cup final we don't speak about because Brazil beat Germany 2-0. Then the 06 World Cup final, 1-1 Italy and France. Italy went to extra time and won on penalties. 2010, 1-0 Spain over the Dutch after extra time. And 2014, Germany 1-0 over Argentina after extra time. And I look at all of those, and despite the fact that Germany won that most recent one in 2014, these were all relatively boring games. Like, World Cup finals over the recent years haven't been terribly exciting in terms of a lot of uh, back-and-forth, intense drama that you can find in terms of scoring, at least, as opposed to the intense drama of a nil-nil draw going into extra time and possibly even penalties, which is why I think I might get a bit of flack for this, but the 2018 World Cup final was really exciting and really interesting. We go back to that. That was a really, really great World Cup final. We talk about a Croatian team coming in that hadn't really gotten to this point before the golden generation, you will, of Croatia with Ivan Perisic scoring loads with Luka Modric doing his absolute best and we contrast that with possibly one of the best French teams in history up there with that 1998 team where that role of Zidane really going out there and dominating the game was kind of flipped on its head and given to a young winger in Kylian Mbappe but we go ahead and look at this match and we look at the scoreline of this 18th minute own goal Mario Mandzukic. How rare is that that we open up a game with an own goal? Followed up 10 minutes later by a goal from Ivan Perisic to draw it even. And then 10 minutes after that, a foul in the box gives Antoine Griezmann a penalty and he easily converts that. And so you go into the half, it's only 2-1. There have only been two yellow cards distributed, one to Luca Hernandez and one to N'Golo Kante, who ended up having to get subbed off because of that yellow card. And you just look at this game and it's like, this could really go either way. Now, only a couple of minutes after that halftime whistle was blown, that was immediately dispelled because Pogba scored in the 59th and Mbappe scored in the 65th. And so with a 4-1 lead, France really kind of seemed like they had it in the bag. 
But then four minutes after that, Hugo Lloris has a terrible botched pass and a terrible touch, and it gives it right to Mandzukic, who avenges himself for that previous own goal and makes it 4-2. And the rest of that game was just a lot of attacking from Croatia to really try to make it an intense affair to try to challenge France to make them stop the Croatians as much as they can. They ended up doing that, but still, those final minutes were incredibly tense. But look at that scoreline, 4-2. Six goals were scored in this match, and that's not something that happens very often. There have only been five matches in the history of the World Cup, including this one, that had at least six goals. The very first one was a 4-2 win for Uruguay over Argentina, 1938, a 4-2 win for Italy over Hungary, 1966, a 4-2 win for England over Germany, though it should be argued that it really should have only been a 3-2 win because of that goal that shouldn't have counted, and the only uh, the only World Cup final that had more goals scored in it was the 1958 final where Brazil beat Sweden 5-2. to But think of that. The last time that a 4-2 win, that six goals had been scored in a World Cup, was 66 years prior, was 52 years prior to the 2018 World Cup. And a lot of the ones since then, they were just kind of regular, boring, 2-1, 1-0, 3-1 wins that didn't really inspire much confidence and weren't nearly as exciting as this one. Yeah, you're right, Jake. That, that game really was a lot of fun. And I guess what makes it fun is when you take the rooting interest out of it. Like, there was no connection for me between any of the teams. Sure, I admired some of the players and liked watching certain players on both teams play. But that was a fun game. And when it comes down to it, you know, that's the question that was asked of us. And I think you nailed it right on the head. I went with more of a personal standpoint. But you uh, you nailed it on that one, Jake. I'll give you credit. I'll give you credit. All right? So for me... For context, I'm 29. Uh, I have an older sister. She's three years older than me. We've both been playing soccer since we were like four years old. So I have been around this sport forever. I remember the days getting Eurosport magazine or ordering my first pair of Adidas Predators that were famously worn by David Beckham and Zinedine Zidane. I've got my first pair in like 2000, 2001. It was myself and another kid from the town team that had them, and everyone thought they were the greatest thing. He had the white pair. I had the moon colored, the silver pair. Um, so for me, the natural evolution, uh, 94 World Cup, I hardly remember, even though it was, was in the U.S. I was very young. I was born in 91. 98, I do remember. I vividly remember the final. I remember France winning it. I remember seeing images of uh, the streets of France going crazy when they won. Now, 2002, Jake, I don't know if you would remember, Chuck, I'm sure you remember quite well. It was a tricky one because it was in Korea, Japan, so the time difference was very aggressive, um, and USA had that solid run, and it's very interesting because it was in that quarterfinal match against Germany where we had that non-handball call where the ball was going in. I don't know if it, I don't know who it was. I can't remember. Germany handled it on the line, no VAR. I mean, it was a blatant handball, clear as day. That one could have gone far differently. Obviously, Germany went on to the final. Um, but because of the time difference, that one was difficult to watch, especially when you're in elementary school. Um, it's one of those things where I think, Chuck, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think they had 
live games on at 6 a.m. and then you had to stay up till like 2 or 3 a.m. to watch the live recordings. Otherwise, they would show recordings of like the U.S. games and the games that happened in the wee hours of the morning um, for that World Cup just because of the time difference. Not to say that they weren't great hosts, but it's just very difficult to follow it. Um, now, I would definitely stay up that late, but when you're, you know, six, seven years old, it's just not something that's very feasible to do. Uh, but my favorite, you know, kind of giving you that, that build up to how long I've been involved in the game, 2006, I was a freshman in high school. That hands down has to be my favorite World Cup final. We had everything, France versus Italy, the, the Marco Matarazzi, Zinedine Zidane, the headbutt, the trash talking. There's so much conspiracy on what Matarazzi actually said to Zidane that provoked him to headbutt him in the chest. Uh, we had a Penanka penalty. For those of you who don't know, that's when you just kind of cheekily chip the ball uh, instead of hitting it with pace. And even without VAR, that penalty from Zidane just went over the line. Marco Materazzi scored for Italy, goes into extra time. Penalty, Zidane gets sent off. That final had everything. I think that Germany was one of the best hosts of the World Cup. So many great venues. It's really cool to go back and look at clips now from venues that we routinely see when Bayern Munich uh, are on their away days, uh, like Leipzig, Stuttgart, Hanover, um, all of these venues that um, I, I recognize, didn't recognize back then, um, and now I recognize watching clips. And, you know, as a joint Bayern Munich and Liverpool fan, I've been a Liverpool fan since like 2003, 2004, when I saw them play in a preseason game. And um, I think the England 2006 teams was one of their, I should say the England 2006 team was one of the best England sides ever to have been assembled that just slightly underachieved just because there's so many. Um, I've heard a lot of the guys talk about it, you know, Steven Gerrard, Carragher. I've heard uh, Wayne Rooney talk about it. Some of the Man U guys, Rio Ferdinand, Gary Neville, that when they would meet up for national camps, there would be a lot of unspoken non-socializing just because of the rivalries in the league. You know, the, the North Enders would sit with the North Enders. The guys from London would sit with each other. The guys from Manchester would, would sit together and kind of not converse uh, with some of the other guys. And they would just, you know, get to work when it was time to train and time to play. And that's something that they've said has completely changed, you know, with uh, Gareth Southgate. He always says everyone does everything together. There's no clicks. Um, I want to make sure that everyone is as transparent as possible doing everything together. And, you know, obviously I think England has a, has a very good shot at the next Euros uh, when that takes place in 2021. But for me, 2006 was just the, the pinnacle of, you know, my, my heightened interest in soccer, having played it for, for most of my life. Seeing my idol, Steven Gerrard, I think that was also the peak of his career. Uh, he scored a couple goals in that World Cup. Uh, one of the famous games, England versus Sweden, he scored a header. And then uh, Joe Cole scored that crazy, crazy volley from like uh, 60 yards out. I think that game was uh, in Cologne. Chuck, I'm sure you might remember that one. But um, yeah, that World Cup, I mean, it just had everything. I just have so many vivid memories. Podolski getting his head gashed open and then scoring right after, sliding right into the side camera after he scores. It just, it had everything. For me, that's uh, the best World Cup, and that final just encapsulated everything. We had the Penanka, the red card, the headbutt, the drama, the extra time, the penalties. Um, and yes, for me, that was just my uh, my favorite World Cup, and 
There's been so many great World Cup memories. All right. I think that's going to do it for us. Thank you very much for listening. We'll try to do some more fun things like that, like this more often. But the only way that we can do that is if you guys submit questions for us to answer. And you can do that on Twitter with the hashtag AskBPW. Or be sure to leave a comment below the blog post for this on our website, BavarianFootballWorks.com. And we'll be sure to check there. But in the meantime, be sure to like, rate, Subscribe and download us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your quality audio content. Follow us on Twitter at BavarianFBWorks, at The Barrel Blog, at TommyAdams71, and at Jefferson Fenner. And until next time, we will see you all later. Auf Wiedersehen.